Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 34. This week I'm delighted to say that I've got Clive Gilman with me on the podcast and I suppose a few of you might well know him. Um, he is Director of Creative Industries at Creative Scotland at the moment. Um, previously he spent 10 years at the DCA as director as well. Um, and so before that we talk about um, him studying down in London and then moving up to Liverpool and that sort of transition between his artistic career and then more into the sort of facilitation um, and taking on roles that are, are much more organisational and he kind of comes out with this amazing phrase um, the, sort of the boring backroom stuff when he talks about um, some of the roles that he's had um, and I think <laughs> reading between the lines and I, I do sort of press him on it it's more that, that high level strategic thinking that he's talking about um, and, that, and I think in any organisation or moving any company forward you, you need that um, really strong underlying strategic thinking and it's something that Clive seems to do extraordinarily well um, and he talks about the way that that was implemented at DCA and the way that he's he's trying to work on that at Creative Scotland, which is fascinating. And we have a really interesting chat about about that and, and sort of trying to pick out and find out what a director does day to day. Um, because often these sort of big positions can, although you are a, a sort of figurehead of the organisation, it's kind of tricky to understand what goes on day to day and what the role actually entails. So hopefully this gives you a bit of an insight because it definitely did for me to really understand what Clive gets up to. And there's a whole load of, of lovely little anecdotes and quips. And But yeah, so before we, we dive in, there's just one thing that happened on Twitter last week uh, which made me smile. Um, two podcast guests, so Colin Anderson and Colin Gray, I saw them having a little conversation. They tweeted each other and decided to meet up for a coffee um, and I just it was great to see and it's those little things, the, the little tweets the little comments um, they really make it worthwhile um, when I can see that, that the podcast is actually making a difference and it's bringing people together then that just feels fantastic um, so actually for anyone who'd, who might be new or listen to the podcast for the first time um, the best place to keep up to date with all the episodes um, is at CCC Dundee on Twitter and on Instagram and facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee and also um, just to mention I suppose I've been running this for I think it's over seven months now it's just me trying to keep it all going um, and one way that I'm trying to get you guys to support me if you are enjoying the content if you have enjoyed the the previous episodes and do feel you're getting something out of it a way to give back and to help me sustain the podcast um, is to buy some of the merchandise so i've got some prints um, some awesome little badges and some quote books all based upon the content from the podcast um, so if you would like to support it and keep it going um, yeah check out cccdundee.com forward slash store that's it yeah let's dive into the episode so this is episode number 34 and this is with Clive Gilman I I trained I did fine art at art school um, I discovered that 
probably quite late. I didn't know you could go to art school. I didn't know such a thing existed. Um, I, I tell this story and I've got no idea if it's true, but I remember going to see a careers officer when I was at school saying that I was really into photography and the careers officer saying that uh, she thought I'd be okay because they have photographers in the army. And that, that was the kind of the scope of my, uh, yeah, my, my, my professional opportunities. Um, and I actually d- discovered that you could go and do a thing called a foundation course, which I did that was an absolute joy. Um, massively broadened my horizons, went off to do um, study fine arts, went to Sheffield, um, had a great time there. Um, and quite quickly after that, found myself working in a particular area of the arts. Um, I I kind of majored around kind of video, digital stuff. And because there was a bit of a, uh, a kind of a boom around that at the time, uh, I, was, I grew up in London. When I went back to London, there was a lot of activity in there. I got my work shown quite a lot and found I, I had a really positive post-college experience. Um, eventually got involved in working within the infrastructure that supported artists to make work as well. So because I had some technical skills around things like video production, I, I taught other people how to do video production. I taught video editing and image processing and stuff like that and then gradually started to work within organisations. Left London to move to Liverpool to set up an organisation that was about providing uh, technical support for artists that were exhibiting with video and digital technology. So this is sort of what age would you say? Um, Right, okay, this is going to age me quite quite drastically. Um, I, 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 uh, I left art school in 1983, and then I went on to do a master's in London and hung around London for a bit until uh, 1991 when I moved to Liverpool um, to set up this new organisation there. Because before, I mean, it's a lot about your practice. Yeah. But then there's a sort of transition there where yeah. you're going to actually start to work with other people and look at yeah. their practices. Yeah, I, I always I always liked the idea of working collaboratively. Um, I'd always played in bands. Um, the kind of whole idea of the art experience, the making of art, um, felt like something that was at its best when it was collaborative, when when you had other people working around you, when you were doing things as a group. And and that extends very naturally, I think, into working with organisations where you are just trying to help people do things. So sometimes you'd be working on somebody else's project, sometimes they'd be working on your project. Um, So doing stuff like video editing was really interesting because although you were a you were effectively a kind of technician in the process. You actually had a big input into how that end project came together. Um, you know, you were suggesting ways of doing things. Um, you were kind of uh, engineering some solutions or ideas that could be built into the to the work that people were making. And that was really, really good, really good fun. But also when, when I got into the whole thing about supporting exhibition technology, a lot of that was really interesting because I, I, I knew a lot of people, a lot of artists that were working with uh, video and digital technology art forms, but a lot of galleries were quite resistant to it because um, they well they didn't really see it as, as art at, at that time. It was it was kind of seen as being somewhat peripheral to, to mainstream art practice, and so it was really interesting to start not only just supporting it technologically, technically, but actually supporting it as 
a legitimate art form, a legitimate form of practice that those museums and galleries could could show. So, but helping them uh, take the pain out of it a little bit by being able to explain how to do it, how to use the technology, and how to make sure that it could be presented in the right way. Mm. So yeah, it was, it was good. Yeah. So that was your time in in Liverpool. That's when yeah. that started off. Yeah. Um, so how was that transition going from obviously like the big hub of London and then moving up? Um, yeah, I, I, Liverpool's Liverpool's a great place, a really exciting place. And at that time, um, rather bizarrely, there were probably two places outside of London that were really important in terms of video technology, video art, and they were actually Liverpool and Dundee. Um, and Dundee specifically because Steve Partridge, who's still at Duncan and Jordanston, had set up um, an incredibly high-level electronic imaging course, which was doing uh, postgraduate courses for people that were perhaps coming out of art school that had used maybe relatively low-level technology, but they had the best equipment in the whole of the UK in, in, in Dundee at that time. So Dundee was always on the map for me, uh, and probably at that time, you know, Dundee and Liverpool, and Liverpool because it had um, an emerging uh, video arts festival that was the main one for the UK, were both kind of key nodes. And uh, London being London, it's it's the kind of place... I mean, I, I, I left London, you know, and the door closes behind you and you're forgotten within kind of 30 minutes. And I kind of like the idea, you know, this whole thing about working collaboratively, working with partnerships. I quite like the idea of being in a place where you can actually embed what you're doing much more deeply where you get a sense that um, you're not just working kind of in, a, in, a, in the middle of a tiny little bubble that actually the work that you're doing has got a much broader impact and so I think it's possible to do that in places like Liverpool and Dundee. So do you think Liverpool and Dundee have quite a lot of similarities then? Uh, they, they do I mean I suppose they, what they've got in common other cities have also got in that you know they're post-industrial cities um, Port cities, cities that have actually faced the world as much as they as they faced their kind of hinterland, either in Scotland or in England. Um, you know, Liverpool sometimes perceives itself as being, you know, an island off the west coast of of Britain. You know, halfway between uh, England and America, and, and it feels very different. It feels like a place that has got its own identity, and I think Dundee's got a lot of that. You know, Dundee's got this kind of weird um, hermetic nature that that. If you you know if you if you if you cross the Kingsway and you, you kind of keep going north, Dundee stops really quickly, um, and Liverpool's a bit like that. Um, Alexi Sale talks about um, the accent boundaries that you get when you leave Liverpool and, and as you approach Manchester. So within thirty miles, you've got three different accents that you encounter, and I think you know D Dundee's really good for that as well. You know the, the sense, the hermetic sense of the city is really powerful here. So in your time in Liverpool, you were involved in setting up Fact. Yes, yeah. Um, can you explain a bit about what that is and how that came about? Yeah, um, the, the reason I moved to Liverpool was um, th there was a guy there, Eddie Berg, who had um, set up and was running a video festival that was the kind of main festival for the UK I mentioned before. Um, I, I went originally to show work in the festival in 1991. I was commissioned to make uh, a piece that was an, an, a 12-channel video installation called Losing that was based on uh, football. I kind of hung around. It was a really interesting place to be. Um, Eddie was keen to, to do some stuff with me. And so one of the things that we then developed was this exhibition technology resource um, that was based in Liverpool. We worked together, grew those activities. 
and by kind of the late 90s started to uh, see the potential for actually doing something much larger scale. So to begin with, there was about three or four of us actually working together. By the kind of 2003, we'd, we'd got money, built a building, we built a kind of a 12 million pound building that was the home for all this activity and it was employing 50, 60 people, something like that. So it was a, it was a kind of incredible journey, incredible trajectory for the, for the project. And it was kind of creating a home for this kind of work and wrapping up all these ambitions about, you know, what, what does a home for uh, digital media look like as a, as a physical entity? How do you build that? How do you make that work? Who do you make, you know, who are you doing it for? And the organisation, Fact, had this really interesting approach where it had an exhibition programme where it showed artists, but it also had this thing called a collaboration programme, which was all about partnership working and developing projects with the communities of the city. And then this thing called the structural programme that was about learning skills, doing research into emerging creative technologies, building a resource that could help artists to actually make the work. So it was a really interesting project. Um, still going now, and I, I kind of left that in 2005. So. So take us through that journey from from being there, yeah, and then making the move up to up mm. to Dundee into the to the DCA. Yeah, um, I think I'd, I'd been in um, Liverpool um, fifteen years, had a family there. I, I kind of loved the city; it's a great place, um, but was interested in some new challenges. Kind of always liked. Scotland always actually always liked Dundee. Dundee was my because of this link back to Duncan of Jordanstone, where I'd been up and down to do bits of teaching and stuff. Dundee was the city in Scotland that I knew best. Actually, uh, I I applied for a job in Scotland prior to the DCA job. Was actually offered that job. Got very nervous because it was in a very remote part of Scotland. Wasn't quite sure whether or not it was going to be the right thing or not. Um, I ended up turning that down. And then about two weeks later, the DCA job was advertised and I kind of thought I'll give that a go. So uh, went for that and wanted to see whether or not, you know, I could do that thing of rather than building something up, which was built up largely around my own, you know, built around my ideas and, and the people I was working with, you know, we built it. Rather than doing that, actually moving into something that was already established and seeing how it, how it would work to manage that and take it forward. And also to see how um, you know, the ideas that I'd learned through that process could work in, in a different kind of context. Mm. So yeah, um, got that job in 2005. So what, what was it that, that drew you to that position? And what, was it, what sort of challenges excited you about that opportunity? Um, I think one of the great things about DCA is that it's it's a hybrid. It's it's one of the great things about it, but it's also one of the challenges about it in that it has um, has production and it has exhibition, it has education activity, and it has all the relationships that it has back into the universities in the city and specifically into Duncan and Jordanston. And I really liked that kind of hybrid approach. So this idea that it was a, it was a big facility, a big centre that was embedded in, in a city where it had all of these kind of tentacles reaching out in different ways to see how you could make the most of that, see how you could really make that work. And, and in some ways, how you could make, um, make the city take on the image of what this place is about. So to think, not just think about DCA as being something in the city, but 
you know of the city and actually driving what the city can be so building ambitions for the city out of a, a project like that so kind of quite um quite, quite quite high ideals for what you can do with a center like that and how you can actually help to move a city forward and transform a city so in your, you were there for 10 10 years, 10 years yeah, so. yeah over those 10 years what did you develop what did you change what did you influence by by being there? um yeah that's a good question because i i'm I don't know. I mean, it was, a, it was, um, it was good. It was hard, hard work, and not always, not always easy, not always pleasant. Um, and the burden of running a public building that's open seven days a week, you know, f- opens the doors at eight o'clock in the morning to have, you know, the first staff come in and is open until one or two in the morning is is an absolute nightmare. You know, you, you I, I, I think I'd worked, I'd worked there for a couple of years before I ever saw the building shut. So you know that that's a terrible burden, you know, going home at night knowing that at any point someone's going to call you and say, you know, the toilets are broken or you know. So so there's there's all that very practical, pragmatic stuff about running a, a public building. But in terms of what, what, what how how we moved it forward, I, I suppose the major thing was um, when I, when I arrived, it, it was it was a set of different functions operating under one roof and the thing that for me seemed really important was how, how do you make this into a single thing so everyone's pulling in the same direction so what we did we, we actually kind of rewrote the all of the strategy for the organization and it's, it's kind of boring kind of backroom stuff but it's all about saying to the staff you know are we, are we all are we all serving one aim and actually, what is that aim? So rather than, say, the cinema team saying, well, actually, this is what we do as cinema and the gallery team saying this is what we do as gallery, print studio, whatever. H- how do you create an organisation where everybody feels like they are part of the same thing, that it's all pulling in the same direction? So we went through this big exercise of redefining the mission of the organisation and its aims. And then every year we'd report on that. And so we'd have a, an internal conference where we'd talk about how, you know, how are we doing? What, what have we achieved? Are we all still on the same page? And how do we manage those? tensions and how do we how do we bring those together in a way that makes sense for the audiences that that may come or you know that don't come that we want to come so you know one of the great things about um dca's discovery film festival and and when i arrived it was in its second year it was project funded it was gonna die effectively because we didn't have any money to to carry it forward so we kind of backed it we mainstreamed it but more than just bringing it in as a uh, a film festival for young people that happens at the cinemas. We brought it out as to be something that works across the whole organisation. So um, we, we, there's great. Some of the best exhibitions we did uh, uh, during my time there were where the gallery exhibition was was an exhibition that was designed to work for the young audiences that would be coming to Discovery, but wasn't wasn't talking down to them. We put on some really challenging work, really. Um, amazing kind of engaging experiences. Um, we did a Torsten Lauschmann exhibition that kind of corresponded um, with the with the film festival, and it was you know as as an exhibition for anybody, it was one of the best exhibitions that that, that we'd done there. But as an exhibition where you could bring young people in who are not only perhaps having their first experience of a uh, foreign language cinema, sometimes even their first experience of being in a cinema. And actually taking them into this space where you had these incredibly magical things happening that sh- that kind of demonstrated what could be possible within the kind of four white walls of a gallery, and so that that, that was kind of some of the stuff that I was really proud of. He's, I just want to pick up on a, a sort of phrase that you used um, there. 
the boring backroom stuff when you <laughs> when you talked about the sort of high level strategic thinking. Yeah, yeah. So I'm interested to see where where the where the line between the boring backroom stuff and the fun, interesting, creative stuff yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I suppose you kind of have to do the boring backroom stuff in order to make the front-facing, interesting stuff happen well. And I suppose you cannot disconnect them. The, the, the boring backroom stuff has to be informed by the excitement of the possibility of all of the stuff that you can do on the, in the front room. The, 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 the danger comes... Um, when you you know when you, when you stop challenging yourself when you stop you know when when you do things just because that's this kind of cycle of habits that you've got into and you know if you, if you're running a gallery like DCA there's always somebody you know there's always a big queue of people that want to show there there's always a big queue of people that other galleries want you to show and and you you could just keep doing that and you could narrow down your field of relationships to um, all those other people that are in your immediate peer group, but for me, I was much more interested in what, how we could do that, but also make it work for people in Dundee. How people here, um, who who actually were very proud of it, but maybe didn't come, how how could we make that work for them so that they actually felt it was something that excited them as well? Mm-hmm. So, how, how do you get that read through? And that that's a big. It's a big challenge, but it's a really exciting challenge. And the only way you can really crack that is by getting everybody on board. So that means getting people in a room, actually having a big conversation, sometimes quite a difficult conversation about, you know, why are we doing this? Who are we doing it for? How do we know what they want? How do we know whether or not what they want is what we want to do? And how do we actually all come together on the same page? All of those things are so important. Mm. And I suppose my impression of, of what your role would have been as director, that there's going to be a high percentage of that boring... Yeah. backroom stuff yeah and that it's the the joy probably comes in the sort of facilitation of other people releasing their creativity rather than you yeah. necessarily being able to do it on your own yeah yeah i mean i um so some of my kind of most you know my, my most proudest moments i think my most proudest moments of, of, of being at dca is, is not when i'm foregrounding my role within the project it's actually suddenly seeing something that that gels something that works some seeing uh, or almost actually hearing somebody talk about it without knowing who I am and actually what it means for them um, you know it, it's I don't know it, it's, it's quite hard when you're a director of something like DCA um, not to let not to let the ego that comes with that status kind of creep into the decisions that you make about what happens there so I, I was always really keen that we kind of crowdsourced from the team what it was that we were trying to do. I mean, one of the things that we did, and I don't know if this was wise or not, and it probably didn't earn me any friends, but um, I, I kind of avoided crediting anybody in particular at DCA. It was always that DCA had done this. So um, if if we uh, you know if we did an exhibition, it was DCA that had done it. It wasn't a person at DCA. I'm still not entirely sure whether that was the right decision, but it was partly a way to make it that to establish us as a team. And so it wasn't about the director. It was actually about everybody right the way through to um, kind of Murray, who, who's one of the guys in the blue shirts that is you know an absolutely staunch, loyal servant of that place, but actually, um, you know, never necessarily gets championed. But, you know, the place wouldn't function without him and making sure that everybody has a, has a role to play in that. Kind of sounds a bit... 
sounds a bit romantic, but actually, you know, fundamentally, places only work. I think if you if you make that happen, mm-hmm. and it's, I mean, it's an ethos that's built across lots of different brands. Yeah, whether it's Nike or Apple or yeah, yeah. whatever, they they, yeah. they build it up so that you're whether you're a designer or whether you're the guy on the shop floor that's trying to sell you products. Yeah, that you have yeah. that feel that you're part of this bigger entity. Yes, um, that yeah. is doing yeah. good and creating yeah. cool things. Yeah, and, and the, the 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 really tricky thing comes when the value that you're creating is not necessarily the obvious subjective value of money, that when you're trying to create value in other forms, you're trying to create um, you know, brilliant cultural experiences, you're trying to be inclusive, you're trying to make sure that um, you're doing the kind of transformative things for people, but you're also saying to people, actually, we know you like to be challenged, we know you like to have your your worldview reinforced, so we'll, 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 we'll work with that as well. Um, so, so all those kind of real quite soft things, those unmeasurable things, but things that are just incredibly important to us. How, how do you make sure that everybody has a stake in that, that has a share in that as well? With mm-hmm. I, I used to kind of have this, um, uh, I used to show a lot of elected members, councillors around, and used to talk about the fact that, you know, the, one of the great things about DCA is that most of what we do is entirely useless because actually um, it's really important, the most important things in life are useless. Um, so things that have no other utility than to be themselves. So to actually have a space where um, you can come and just experience something for what it is, it's not about something else. It's just so important to have that. And it's a real privilege to have something like that in a city like, like Dundee. That's a nice little snippet. Um, <laughs> and sort of also the, like the, the most things should be useless. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I, I definitely preach that we should make more stupid shit and just put it into the world for fun. Because um, yeah, yeah. if you can make someone smile or brighten up their yeah. day, then that's a fantastic thing. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be more serious than that. We don't yeah. have to. Because I think we get bogged down a lot of the time in conversion rates and like yeah. how much money is that going to make? And yeah. Yeah. really, you got to be thinking about can you spread a little bit of joy or happiness? Yeah. Or, or just yeah. We don't. We don't make art to make money. We make money to make art. That's the way around it needs to be. Yeah. So moving on from there, you sort of there was that ten-year chunk. Yes. Um, at the DCA. And then there was obviously a decision that that it was time to move on. Yeah. Yeah, what the hell? Um, yeah, yeah I, I kind of, again, I, uh, fantastic. I love, love DCA to bits. But I think there comes a point with all those things where, uh, you know, you, you can start to become part of the furniture. Um, I, I always like the idea that, the the purpose of any job that I do is to make myself redundant. You know, I have to know when I've done my job, and and sometimes it's really important to keep a view on that and understand. Actually, yeah, I think I've done my job here. It's time to move on. So um, I think that came to me, and I I was looking around for what might represent the next challenge, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this whole area of of creative industries, which is um, still a really difficult area, an area that's totally top-down in terms of it being a a policy imperative, um, but representing something that's incredibly important, which is kind of, you know, how how do we help all of those people that are doing creative things and trying to earn a living at it, how, how do we help them to do that? So I was really interested in what we could do about that. And, and given the kind of journey that we'd been on within Dundee over, over that decade in terms of the fact that 
that that had grown significantly but grown in quite an interesting way so you know here fleet collective all of the other kind of collective activity that was going on in the city people now starting to stay in the city a little bit more after say graduating from the art school or dabatea or whatever and all of the ways in which say the games community were now starting to think about not just being guns for hire but actually thinking about the ideas of what it is to be a games designer and how you can be a progressive radical games designer but still earn a living doing that how do we help all that stuff to grow and, and to develop and not to get too hung up on the kind of rhetoric of the policy but actually building it out of those motivations and aspirations that people have um, so I was, I was kind of saw that as a great possibility and, and so kind of made a pitch for the job um, and got it yeah, and so I'm still trying to achieve that. <laughs> but again, you've you, you've gone into another big organisation. Mm. How was that sort of the onboarding process? If you like going into that that position, was yeah. it daunting or was it quite easy to? to... Yeah, um, I, I I'm still learning that to be honest. I think you know I'm two years in post now, and I'm. St- I still don't think I'm kind of drilled in how I need to operate successfully in that arena. Um, I'm still probably, I've still got too many of the kind of residual programming ideas, objectives, you know, that that I that I kind of feel uh, we we need to be doing. And I think Creative Scotland's got its fingers burnt quite badly in the past by starting to become a kind of a you know, a directive organisation saying, you know, this is the way things should be. So I, I'm still trying to hold on to the idea of how, how do I, how, how do I really understand what the right thing is to do, and and actually that can't come totally from me and my ideas or my team. It has to come from all of the people that might be out there who we should be working with. And and you know, we, we know that there are Scottish government tells us that there's over fifteen thousand businesses working within the creative industries in Scotland. So how the hell do we work out what they need? And they're all working in different sectors, they're all working in very different ways. So trying to work that out without being too directive, um, but but hope, hopefully offering up some interesting solutions, some positive ways forward while making sure that you can bring people with you. That That's the challenge at the moment. And, and given that that's done in the context of loads and loads of other public sector agencies all having a stake in this area, that, that that's the challenge really. Because I was sort of reading through the the strategy mm. you have, um, yeah, and one of the the, the focuses um, is micro enterprises. Yeah, um, sort of interest because I suppose I would yeah. define myself as a indeed a micro enterprise. Yes. But I'm interested to find out why why is that so important? So why are the the little guys and the tiny little people trying to start and do that? I mean, why yeah. is that so important? Yeah. Shouldn't we all want to be big, massive companies? Well, a, a few reasons. I mean. The, the first the first thing is that it's mostly micro enterprises the the creative industries is 80 i can't remember 87 percent uh businesses that have got five or less employees so um technically mostly micros but something like 58 percent is sole enterprises so one person businesses um so that that's where the most people are, the most industry the activity is going on but also the key thing for me and the thing that's kind of underpinning all of this is um, the principle that I'm interested in working with is that we have this idea that everybody is creative. Everybody has the potential to be creative. Um, 
some people are more motivated to employ that and use it in a certain way. And what happens is, is that we have all these systems that then they, they work through. You know, some people go to art school, some people don't, some people develop a kind of business approach, some people work within a grant-aided sector, and, and they go through all these different systems. And, and at the other side of that, we actually have some kind of functioning economy. Now, what I'm interested in is how can we make that functioning economy make the most of those creative motivations that people have? So what are all the systems, what are all the kind of methods, the, the institutions, the agencies that we can put in place that enable that to happen in the best way possible? And by the best way possible, I'm kind of working with this idea that amongst the core motivations that people that, who want to do creative things there's there's a there's an ethic at play there quite often people want to do something that is producing social good they want to earn a living doing it and they want to make something that's culturally creatively good so they they balance all of those things together so most people working in the creative industries most people here will be doing good cool creative stuff trying to do it in a way that helps them to earn a living but they're also interested in how that works in the city how it works with their their peers around them. So so they have a really strong sense of how you, you balance all those things off. Now, if we get that right, that's a really good way to run an economy. And my little bit of it, I suppose, is trying to understand how that works for the very specific set of businesses that we call the creative industries. How, how, do, how do we help them to develop, but to recognize that, that, that those kinds of values are recognized within those systems and not just the ones that are about money. And so micros are often the ones that are, micro businesses are the ones that are regulating themselves in that way. So the thing that we hear most often is that, you know, I don't want to grow my business because I'm going to lose creative control. So, okay, well, how, how do we help you to re retain that creative control while also growing your business? And not necessarily getting into a, some kind of big high growth thing where you're kind of selling out to venture capitalists or whatever but growing it through your trading, but actually recognizing that that's a good thing to do and actually can help you. And, and so if, you, if we can take, you know, 10,000 creative businesses that all currently employ one person and get them to employ another person, that's a big thing. So that, that's for me where I think our work can be best uh, directed. And so all these, these sort of micro enterprises, they start with an idea. Yeah. Um, and everyone has ideas. Yeah. But what I'm interested to get your perspective on how you feel, what makes a good idea? <laughs> uh, a good idea. Well, I, I suppose I'd argue that not quite often they don't start with one idea. Quite often there are lots of ideas and it's knowing which ones are going to be the ones that you want to take forward. And quite often you're in a situation where there's an idea that's a really great idea, but it's never going to earn you any money. And there's another idea that might earn you some money, but actually you're not quite so excited by it. And so how, how do you balance all of those off? And how do you, um, like I, back, talking back my own experience, you know, I, I was really excited by learning uh, new tools and new technologies. You know, I, I used to teach macromedia director with kind of interactive media software and i was really excited by the next iteration of it i was kind of hugely enthused by the possibilities of that um but quite often what people wanted wanted to be taught was like photoshop version three you know and you could sort of teach it kind of with your eyes shut it wasn't particularly exciting but actually i could probably earn more money teaching photoshop than i could direct macromedia director so you can you know i'd balance those off and i'd do projects in director which taught me 
the possibilities of it so that I could then show those to others. So, you know, always trying to play and balance those things off. So I suppose that to answer your question, a good idea is the one, I suppose, that hits that sweet spot between those different forms of value that you as a business or, or as, a, as a person are trying to generate. That's a, a great creative idea that can perhaps help you to keep the wolf from the door, you know, pay, pay the food bill, but also kind of does that cute thing of speaking to your community, you know, showing that you've got great ideas, showing you that you're somebody that kind of cares about where you are, you know, so, so you know, those, those are the really kind of cool sweet spots that I think can happen in this area. Mm -hmm. So to move away from this and, and sort of focus more on you and, and your sort of day to day. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is a question I asked Beth Bate when I, I oh, yeah, on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, what do you actually do? Because <laughs> yeah. you're sort of this figurehead yeah, that, yeah. that often yeah. sits at the top. And, yeah. um, like, but, but we don't really get a good view of yeah. what your day-to-day -day life yeah. is like. It's quite funny, actually, because there's this thing about... Um, I actually talk, used to talk about quite a lot at DCA, um, that, that in a lot of organisations, you know, you have senior management teams or leadership teams, and people always think they make decisions. And actually... It's very rare that you actually see a decision getting made. There's this kind of soft sort of osmosis of consensus that comes through the, these processes where you get lots of people in a room and they talk about something and then at some point people kind of think you've sort of agreed something and then that thing gets written down and then it gets passed on to somebody else and it gets turned into an action that then has some money attached to it and it ends up being you know, some sort of you know, funding scheme or something like that. I'm, I can be quite boringly pedantic about, about decisions and about r the rationale for doing something. Um, so I, I, a lot of my time is kind of spent kind of annoying people by kind of hacking away at tiny points of detail about exactly what it is we're saying here. Why are we doing this? But then at other times, um, I will also be uh, trying to sign off on the catering for an event that I'm doing tomorrow, um, where I'm doing it off-site and I'm, I'm, I'm working with about 15 partners from across Europe who are coming together to have a discussion about future policy for the creative industries across Europe. And so I've got, um, yeah, we've got a space where that's going to be happening and trying to fret about whether or not we're going to be able to manage five parallel Skype channels on the back of uh, the Wi-Fi that we've got in this room. So, so you know, it, it kind of veers between those two things. Lots of sitting in meetings, going through agendas, talking about, say, uh, yeah, approving funding decisions. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I could probably sit and go through my diary, actually. I, <laughs> but that would be really boring. So how do you maintain that level of organisation? Is there any like techniques or methods or tips or tricks that you've developed over the years that help you stay organised? Yeah, uh, if you can't fit it on one side of an A4 piece of paper, it's not worth knowing. <laughs> I've written documents that are far longer than that, so I don't always abide by that rule. But there has to be something whereby, you know, if you have a question that needs answering, if you can't fit the answer on one side of A4, then something's kind of gone wrong. You're asking the wrong question. Um, yeah, sorry, that, that sounds really old man kind of talk, doesn't it? But I, I kind of like the idea that um, we need to be really clear. Um, we've written a strategy for creative industries, 
the strategy can almost be summed up in one sentence, which is um, how, how do we grow more sustainable creative businesses? So everything boils down to that statement. So if somebody comes and says, actually, they've got this great idea for a project, okay, is that going to help grow more sustainable creative businesses? Yes or no? And that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in, how we can be really, really clear about what it is we're trying to do and clear about the decisions that we make in response to that. What is it about what you do that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that excites you? Um, I know what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's... it's <laughs> It's, it's, it's got quite scary, actually. My alarm clock is um, Sound and Colour by Alabama Shakes, which I don't know if you've ever heard it, but it's, it's, it's got this lovely, slow vibraphone start, which is a great way, but then it goes into this kind of really loud drum. If you, so if you don't hit the alarm within kind of about 30, 40 seconds, uh, it definitely wakes you up. But sorry, that, that's not the best answer to that question. Um, what keeps me going? Uh, I... I, 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 yeah, I, it's kind of the the Boy Scout thing. I, I kind of really like the idea that it's possible to do good things, that it's possible to make a difference, which always sounds really glib when you say it out loud. It sounds sounds a bit naff, but I, I really, really like the idea that there's that there's a kind of purpose. There's a there's a set of principles that we're working with. They're informed by ethics that, that there is something that we are trying to do here that's about making a better place and sometimes that can get very distant it can feel like you're a long way away from that mm. but it always kind of has to be in view somewhere and a sense that you are working towards it and that can be deeply deeply frustrating at times um, sometimes it's much easier to let go of those things and um, not feel not feel that that they are the things that are the drivers that have to be there all the time, you know, to actually give in to the lowest common denominator of whatever it is you're trying to do. But I, I kind of do like that idea that there is that you know there has to be something that's important mm. in there that you are working towards. And my 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 partner Jackie is a teacher, and she works with kids uh, who got additional support needs a lot of the time and so I I kind of have to say most of the time am I doing something that's as worthwhile as what she's doing and if I'm not then why am I doing it so you know that kind of sense that we need to understand the bigger picture we can't just be indulging ourselves in this stuff mm-hmm. and I suppose there's times where everyone where things get on top of you there's pressure there's stress and I imagine in the role you're in that that happens yeah, yeah. fairly often. Yeah. Um, but how do you how do you deal with that if you're in a, a really high pressure situation or a particularly stressful time? How do you overcome that? Um, I think the the stress often comes through frustration. I suppose you know that that actually um, something not happening the way you you want it to happen or the way you feel it should be happening just because it's been overwhelmed by the noise there's there's noise all the time and you know that kind of wonderful thing about trying to find the signal within the noise is the big problem and actually once you find the signal and you work to amplify it the noise kind of falls away so sometimes you know the noise just gets so much and that's really hard um and so I guess at those moments, you know, it's, it's stepping back, it's actually having somewhere else to go so that the noise isn't quite so deafening. 
kind of so you can regroup, rethink, go back in. And I suppose I I kind of been. I I kind of know that sometimes things things turn corners in the strangest ways as well. So just when you think the noise is just taking over and nothing's ever going to work, suddenly somebody will ring you up or send you an email saying, actually, I've just read something you wrote. That's brilliant. Here we go. We want to do this and something opens up. So, you know, I think if if you're holding on to that idea that there is something that you're working on that's got the possibilities of of, you know, those positive things happening, Others, others see that, others recognise that, and sometimes they fall out of view, but often they, they then come back into view at the right time. So, yeah, holding on to that is really important. There's a sort of belief, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of... There's a kind of quasi... quite scary quasi-religious zeal, I think, in, in some of the things that I'm, I get involved in. Um, I, I think all those principles around belief and faith are actually really, really important. I don't. I don't apply them to anything that constitutes the conventions of of those things. But in terms of you know the belief in people around you, the belief in you know human beings, I kind of I hold to that. I, I I'm never I'm never somebody that uh, I, I wouldn't want to sink back into cynicism or skepticism. I I kind of believe in people. Yeah, I think that at the same time it's about surrounding yourself with good people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things I said when I when I left um, DCA is I I, I kind of had this kind of wonderful thing leaving there. You know, it was it was a really nice moment, um, and people were saying, oh, you know, what, what, you know, it's been really good time. You know, what's what's success? You know, how how does that come about? And I, and I was kind of saying, well, actually, it's, it's just surround yourself with really good people and say yes as often as you can. You know, it, again, sounds like a bit of a God. I'm, I'm tr- sort of bring all of the cliches but it's it's a good way to do things you know actually trust people uh, try and enable people not not try and always be in front of them but actually just let them you know find ways in which they can do really good things and be somebody that helps them to do that it's a really good way to do stuff mm-hmm. and so i've been i haven't been head of a, a, a couple of big organizations and sort of been that that figurehead that that. i imagine that well you have to speak in a certain way that that it's accommodating for the the who you're representing so do you ever feel restricted by that sort of persona that you have to pursue when you're in that role as director yeah i i think i i think i feel restricted by it whether or not the people that need me to be restricted by it feel that I'm being restricted by it is another matter. I, um, yeah, I kind of, I'm not very good at saying anything other than what I believe and consequently that can get me into trouble sometimes. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I suppose I do have to be careful about that because, yeah. You can you can get arrogant around that and actually just assume that everything that you believe is right anyway. So I I don't think I'd ever. I hopefully I wouldn't put things across and say you know it, it's my way and actually I'm just being honest about this when actually I'm just talking bullshit. You know I I kind of that always has to be an option. It always has to be uh, open to challenge. But so so the statement is not about a statement of certainty. It's about a statement of inquiry it's a statement saying actually this is what i think might be significant but 
I want you to tell me if it's not the case because actually I want to end up on the right side of this. So, um, I, but I suppose that the job that I'm in now is probably quite close to some of the trickier sides of that because I'm not that far removed from government. I'm not that far removed from politicians. And there are other worlds there that I don't quite understand and don't necessarily know how to make work in the, in the right way. You know, the thing about um, political cycles are quite problematic, you know, that, that um, political cycles can be quite short. So if you're trying to work on something that's got a 20-year window or a, or a 20-year ambition attached to it, you know, how, how do you make that work? And uh, how do you make that work within the context of the way in which uh, I suppose that the popular... Um, relationship with politicians, which is only in short-term cycles. How, do you, how does that actually function? And you know, how, how do how do you make all those kind of really important soft values like the uselessness stuff? How do, how do you make that work in that context? You cannot talk about that. You know, a politician could not stand up and say, um, you know, it's really important that we do lots of useless things with public money. You couldn't say that, but actually, there's a lot of useless things that happen with public money that are incredibly important. In incredibly important to how we live our lives so we need to find ways in which we can articulate that and we need to support the politicians in articulating that as well mm, yeah i think i mean understanding the the value that's in it that's not monetary or, yeah um it's more about the the social the entertainment the yeah. enjoyment the enlightenment whatever yeah. that may well be yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not new if you go back uh, like robert kennedy uh before he was assassinated talked about this a lot and you know it's it's oscar wilde talked about it a lot you know it, it's it's not a new thing um unfortunately well i wouldn't say it's completely eclipsed at the moment by the dialogue around money but we we certainly have got we've we've kind of become a bit of a hostage to fortune around creative industries because we've talked about it as something that is um a money generator and actually yeah it might generate money but it also does a lot of other things as well and we need to make sure that we're, we're mindful of those other things mm -hmm. So I want to move on now to, to talk about Dundee. Yep. Um, so obviously you spent quite a lot of time here. Yep. Um, and also you, cho you chose not to move away. Yes. Uh, even though you took on the job in Edinburgh. Yes, um, indeed. So before I asked you about that, um, if you were to describe Dundee to someone who had never heard of it or seen it before, yeah, yeah. what would you say? Uh... What? Oh God, that's an interesting one. Um, what would I say? I would say that it's it's. I, I actually when I first came up, I, I somebody I said something. I did an interview for the Courier, um, and I described it as a as a nugget sized city, um, in the sense that it's this kind of really nice, kind of valuable little place, and it's got all of these wonderful kind of jewels encrusted within it. Um, it's also it's it's got that great sense of a community around the people who are doing creative things here and it's also got the 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 fact that those things are read into what the image of the city is about and where the city's going in a way that i don't think i've seen in many other places and that that's that's great that's, that's not a, a succinct way of saying it but um perhaps that expresses some of it mm. so why why didn't you move then why didn't i move uh Moving's a real pain. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I do like it here. Um, and, you know, move, moving's not my decision alone. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I have a, a family. Um, and I, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I there's something really, really lovely about getting up on a Saturday morning, coming into town, going and getting a breakfast bap at the parlour, bumping into a few people, you know, just walking through town and seeing a variety of people going about their lives, but actually just bumping into people in the street and catching up and stuff. So that village feel of, of Dundee I really like. Um, I... Yeah, I, I, I can't. There's something, something about other cities that I find a bit unpalatable about money as well. Um, I, you know, coming from London originally, um, you know, the the parts of London, the way in which the kind of wealth of London is so embedded in kind of dead property is something that is just horrible. And you know, I I don't feel that's a way to run a city. So I kind of like the ambitions of the city and I like being part of that, if I can, if the city wants me to be. <laughs> so in, in light of everything that's happening here and all the change that's going on, mm-hmm. um, what would you like to see come out of the next few years? E, yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of love all the stuff that's happening around um, the design festival and the way that's kind of shaping up. Um, as somebody who was, I have to hold my hands up, I was a little bit sceptical about West Ward and how it could be used. I thought the way um, Sean and, and all the team around him, Annie and everybody else, kind of made the design festival work and I, um, was, was really, really good. I, I liked what that was doing and where that was going. And if that kind of spirit can uh, inform some of the way the city is is developing into the future and actually act as um, perhaps something of a counterpoint to the VNA with the VNA's very outward looking approach that there's this kind of approach about a particular idea of design being something that can improve and develop a city if that's really um, championed and supported within the city I think that would be really exciting um, I, I've in my job, I kind of meet. I've met some of the other UNESCO UNESCO cities of design people, and what I'm aware of is that the way in which it's being looked at, the perspective that exists here in Dundee around that, is kind of different. But I think it's got huge, huge potential. You know that whole idea about how do you, how you know how do you co-design a city with its citizens, and you do that in a way that's creative and smart and witty and funny and just adventurous and I think that there are people here that can do that and that's really really great and just to to finish up as a last question uh, what what excites you generally for the future wow what excites me um I I suppose that that idea that it sounds like cliches actually but that idea that 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 everybody is creative and we kind of knock a lot of that creativity out of them. So if you have somewhere like Dundee that's got great places like DCA, like Nomanis, like The Rep, like Duncan and Jordanston, like Abertay, like here Fleet, if Creative Dundee, if you've got people that are working to think about creativity as being something that inhabits the lives of every citizen in a place. Where does that take you? Where, where do you go with that? What does that do for a place? Um, and describing it like that sounds a bit like some kind of crazy um, kind of mad scientist experiment, but but 
we're we're on the cusp of that. We are thinking about the fact that our individual creativity, which is different in all of us, but actually we all have it. That actually, if we empower that, if we turn that into something that works for us all, it's it's a brilliant place to be. And how how do you then start to to build on that? And I think somewhere like Dundee has got incredible potential for doing that it's put so many of the pieces in place for making that happen and if that can be built upon and it can get to the next level i don't want i don't know what that next level is but the interesting thing is is that the spirit that's informing that journey is one of co-design is one of kind of people working together and if that can happen there's a different kind of city that can emerge from that and i'm really excited to see what that might be great Thank you very much. Um, just before you go, uh, if people want to reach out to you or yep. find you on social media, yep. uh, where do they do that? Um, well, actually, my, my email contacts are completely in the public domain. If you if you go to the Creative Scotland website, I'm there with my email address. Uh, it's it's very, uh, very much out there. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm down on Twitter at the moment. Um, I kind of think like a, a number of people at the moment that, Twitter's got a bit broken and I'm not that keen on it. I've 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 actually dumped Facebook completely um because I don't like Facebook. Am I allowed to say that? They'll come and get me, won't they? <laughs> um I I I don't like I don't like forms of social media media that own your content. So kind of I I have an issue with that. Um so I'm in I mean I guess I'm trying to stay in the ones that are in the public realm, um, which kind of at the moment means that I'm pretty much stuck on email. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. So thank you to Clive. Um, Another amazing episode. I mean, a fantastically insightful chat. Um, Some really interesting talking points. And, I mean, as he says, he's the first guest to come on and say that he doesn't actually use social media um, another interesting approach but to have his email address really open uh, is fantastic and he, yeah, if you want to get in touch drop him a line it's clive.gilman at creativescotland.com you can catch him there and that's it for this week um, yeah if you do want to follow keep up to date with the podcast it's at ccc dundee on twitter and on instagram and facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash ccc dundee and so now it's time for my recommendation so for those of you who have not heard this section before um before i sign off i've decided that i'm going to recommend a podcast um from one of the the sort of catalog that i'm subscribed to and this week's is a little bit different um it's called say why to drugs um, it's run by Dr. Susie Gage. It's actually part of the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, <clears throat> and there's a load of really amazing podcasts on there. Um, I mean, yeah, probably the most famous one would be Scribius Pips, Distraction Pieces, and it's him who runs the that podcast. Um, I'll probably talk about that in, later in another episode, but I just wanted to highlight Say Why to Drugs. Um, it's sort of a really short and sweet episode, so they're maybe 20 to 30 minutes long. And they're about given the the fact about drugs. So I think that the way they say it is they're pro-truth and anti-myth. 
and uh, Dr. Susie Gage is a researcher in that field and they basically go through a whole of drugs from heroin to cocaine to sugar um, to caffeine so a whole range and they, they just talk about the facts and what we know and what we don't and what we can say and what we can't say about it and back it all up with the, the research and the sort of the scientific knowledge behind that um, so I, I mean I've learned a hell of a lot about that I mean it's just fascinating um, even just to find out what we do know and what we don't um, so yeah I'd highly recommend that again the link is in the show notes and that's it for this week hope you enjoyed it Um, and I will speak to you next week. Goodbye.